chapter 1, starting at verse 6, John continues on, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, we know, most if you don't know, I'll let you know, uh, this is not John speaking of himself, this is John speaking of John the Baptist. <clears throat> there was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so the Apostle John, he's attempting to present to mankind what he believes to be true, and he's attempting, as we saw last week, <clears throat> excuse me, he's attempting to meet man at the theoretical level. He can't take Jesus at the time of this writing and say, here he is, this is Jesus, and so he's presenting a theory. Now, it's a theory that we have come to know and believe that is truth. But nonetheless, in the midst of so many theories, he's presenting his theory. And for the last couple of weeks, we saw John's theory stated in verses 1 and 2, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And so his theory is Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is God incarnate. Jesus Christ is God who has become flesh so that man would know and man would understand God and who God is. And so from verse 6 to all the way through to chapter 21, he's displaying to us the reason why he believes this. So he stated his theory, and now he is pouring out, this is why I believe these things. Now, this is a pretty big theory. This man, Jesus Christ, and him being God, and he goes into him being creator. And so he's got a lot to prove. Well, last week he started his argument for the deity of Christ, and his first point that he used was Jesus Christ as creator. And we looked at three key words that are listed here. It says, all things, verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, <clears throat> and, the, and the, excuse me, and the darkness did not comprehend it. <clears throat> So starting in the first couple of verses, the Word. We saw how the Word would grasp the heart of both the Jew and the Gentile. Well, for the Jew, he would go back to Genesis chapter 1, especially the Word and creation, and ten times in that first chapter it says, and God said. And so God spoke, and amazing things happened. In the Greek culture, the Word would mean a lot as well, because they were always looking for the logos. They were always looking for the Word, that would make sense of it all. It would make sense of it all, make sense of humanity, make sense of why they are there, and the purpose of mankind. They were searching for God. Paul would describe it as groping in the dark, but they were looking. And as I pointed out, there was a theory at some point that all life was contained in water, because water moved. It moved without, you know, they didn't understand gravity at, the point, at that point, but it moved. It brought life. It was slow, but it was sure, and it was continuous. You add water to dirt, and things grow out of it. Human beings need water, and it brings life. 
And there was certain other theories at certain points in time that maybe dirt is the the key to understanding deity and all because things grow out of it and it seems like, well, man returns back to it and it seems like, well, there's some sort of force that's at work here and then air and then just so many other. Again, what was mankind doing? He was groping in the dark. But what they were searching for was the logos. Logos means word. It's the Greek term. They were looking for the logos that would make sense of all of these and what were they presenting? They were presenting theories. So, That would catch the attention of both Jew and Gentile. And we saw how the term life would relate to the giver of life and new life. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, And the Lord God formed man of the dust and of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And so he's going to go there very early in his proofs for his theses as we enter into chapter 3 as we see that man Nicodemus and we see how well we see a lot of the foundations of salvation and what salvation is in John 20 verse 22 it says and when he had said this he breathed on them and said to them receive the Holy Spirit and then we saw how the term light spoke of the glory of God now even Seth Mock knows that the first thing God created was light Who's Seth Mock? That's my grandson. He's my grandson who I never think listens to anything that anybody ever says. And we were doing devotions, and I think it, yeah, it was in creation, and Noah was always wanting to know everything about everything. And he says, ask us questions, ask us questions. So what was the first thing God created? And Seth, just out of nowhere, it was white. He doesn't do L's very good. It, it was white. And, uh, and he's right. It's the first thing. So again, it, this, these things are going back to the beginning. So we can see this foundation of how things started is how things they continue. Now, there's the necessity of creation, obviously, but now John's going to bring in in a little bit, because the Lord did, the necessity of recreation or born again. So being at that point, back at the beginning, that there were no stars or sun, This would be the glory of God that shone upon all of creation. Jesus said in John chapter 12, verse 46, I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me shall not abide in darkness. Now, Jesus didn't glow while he was here. He didn't supersede the sun, but he was the glory of God, the visible image of the glory of God. We see how all three of these things come together in the church age in relation to salvation. It's the word of God that brings salvation to mankind. The simple, spoken, or read word of God that's able to change a person. As man is born again, what happens then? He has new life in Jesus Christ. And then from that point on, he reflects the glory of God into this dark world. And we closed with the life that we have in Christ last week. In John chapter 10, verse 10, it says, The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and they may have it more abundantly. Jesus has come for creation, for recreation, and glorification. The abundance of life. Not just life, although he has come that we would live, but also that we would be recreated but later on, that we would be glorified, that we would have eternal life as well. Now tonight, we move on in the apostles' proofs of Jesus as God with the introduction of this man, John the Baptist. Now he's going to get into a little bit more detail a little bit later on in this first chapter, 
but the first thing we see in John the Baptist is, well, this man. This man who is actually an amazing transition. He's a transition? Well, yeah, he's the last, and we need to see ourselves, and we need to really see how the Old Testament, it latches on to the New Testament. John the Baptist is the last of the Old Testament type of prophet. He's speaking about the coming of Jesus Christ, but he's going to also speak of Jesus Christ who has come as well. Now, all the other Old Testament prophets, they were always speaking of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But now John the Baptist, he's blessed amongst all other prophets because he is going to usher in the Messiah. So that kind of puts a little bit of change in John's ministry. The last of the Old Testament type prophets, but now he's the first of the New Testament type of witness. I don't need to prophesy about the coming of Christ. He's already come. What does this world need? This world needs me to witness that Jesus Christ came. And so in verses 6 through 8, we have the illustration of one who has new life and now is alive. Then in verses 9 through 11, we're going to have the reason for that witness. And then verses 12 through 13, we'll have the results of that witness. So the ministry of John the Baptist as compared to the born-again believer today, well, he compares in both reason and purpose. Reason and purpose. John's using this man and using his testimony in his proof for his theory so that we would know and understand. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, And surely I say to you, amongst those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And so what Jesus is saying, of all the Old Testament type prophets, and you can go back to Moses, Isaiah, Daniel, Jeremiah, all the, the big ones, if you will, the ones who were considered to be greater than others. John, again, had the privilege of ushering in Messiah. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Of all of those born again, he was the greatest prophet, but of the least of us born of the Spirit, we're greater. We're even greater than John the Baptist. At least our ministry is greater than John. Why would our ministry be greater than John the Baptist? Because he's there. He baptized the Lord. Yeah, but John wasn't around during the time of his death or his resurrection. And so we have even more to speak of in this Messiah. We have more to speak of in Jesus Christ. I've got greater opportunity because I can speak. He could speak of the one who would die for our sins, and he did live in faith in that. But that, in that particular case, he was speaking of what was going to happen. We can speak of what has happened and the effect that it has on the lives of us and the lives of all of humanity. In John chapter 3, verses 29 through 30, it says, He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Well, that's what John is doing. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled, that he may increase, that I might decrease. And it's the ultimate light of being a witness. You completely pull yourself out of the equation and speak of what you've seen. And so John is brought into the equation as a witness. Now, a witness is not important for who he is. Again, I must increase or decrease and he must increase. But what's important with the witness is what he knows and what he has seen. And so I was at a 
sitting on a jury a couple of, it's been about a year and a half now. And so every witness that went up there, they would question him and they want, would want to know, now, did you see these people? Did you see this car? And if anybody ever said, well, you know what, I think it was, uh, I was going to say they said cut. They didn't say cut. Objection. That's what it was. Objection, Your Honor, because they didn't want, they didn't even want the jury to hear what they thought because what they think isn't important whatsoever. They wanted, no, we want to know what, what you saw. And that's what John is doing, the Apostle John, in bringing John the Baptist in. So what John the Baptist saw would be pertinent to what John the Apostle is trying to prove. So in essence, what the Apostle John is doing is presenting his first witness. Now, in the Gospel of John, John the Baptist is the first witness in a series of six. Six witnesses in order to prove the position of verses 1 and 2. Other witnesses that will be called by the Apostle John is first, the Father, in John eight eighteen. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness with me. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus himself, in John eight fourteen. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from and where I am going. And so if Jesus didn't bear witness of himself, he says, I'm not the Messiah, then how could we place him as Messiah? So it's important to have that witness. The Holy Spirit, John chapter 15, verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And so the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, it witnessed to me, he witnessed to me, he witnessed to me so that I saw the truth of who Christ is. The works of Jesus Christ are a witness. John 5, verse 36, But I have a greater witness than John's, for the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And so the very works, the works of, well, the miracles. We'll get into the first miracles in a couple of weeks in chapter 2, the changing of water into wine, but also the works. The works would be him placed upon the cross. The works would be his sacrificial death. These all speak towards who Jesus Christ is. And then fifthly, the scriptures. John chapter 5, verse 39, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life. He says, and these are they which testify of me. So Jesus needed to come to fulfill the word of God. Had to be born in Bethlehem of a virgin, fulfill all these things that were spoken of him. He had to be crucified upon the cross, but he had to be raised on that third day. And he had to ascend into heaven and be seated at the right hand of the Father. He had to send the Holy Spirit so that man would be filled with the Holy Spirit. His word would continue to reign throughout the centuries. And then one day, he's going to come again. And we're going to see the fulfillment of these things. I don't know if we're going to see the fulfillment of Jesus coming in our day. Seems like we will, but I, can't, I don't know for sure concerning that. But every other witness would be true. Why wouldn't that witness be true as well? Now, the sole purpose of a witness, once again, is to establish the truth. And that's what John is doing. He's made his thesis, and he's wanting you to know that his thesis is true. Let me bring you a witness. Let me bring you this witness, John the Baptist. So, 
qualifications of a witness that we see here. A witness for the Lord. Again, in verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of the light. So, a witness for the Lord. Number one, sent from God. So, at some point, somebody witnessed to you. If you're a born-again believer here tonight, somebody witnessed for you. So, plug these qualifications into somebody who witnessed for me. I have somebody in my mind. He wasn't the person that absolutely led me to the Lord, but he was a person who had a hand in that. But you should be able to plug this into somebody who led you to the Lord, but you should also be able to plug yourself into here as you go and as you witness. So number one, again, sent from God. So John the Baptist, he's a prophet, obviously, he is sent from God. I look back and I see this particular person that I'm thinking of who was part of the salvation process in my life, and I realize today that guy was sent from God. I can look back at instances how God used me and realize it was God who sent me into certain situations and circumstances. There might have been some situations and circumstances I didn't really want to go into, but God led me into them, and then I saw the reason and the purpose after that. And so again, verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Secondly, his witnesses of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Why? Because we don't need a witness of any other person. We've had centuries of people and centuries of all these occurrences and everything, and now here's Jesus Christ in the midst of humanity. That which humanity needs is now amongst us. And so that person that I'm thinking of, sent by God, but what was it that was upon his lips? Was Jesus Christ and him crucified for me. I look back at my situation when I believed that I was sent from God, and as I entered in, in these times that I was obedient, what did I give? I gave the gospel. I gave Jesus Christ an account of Christ and what Christ is able to do in somebody's life. Verse 7, this man came for a witness. Why? To bear witness of the light. And then thirdly, he preaches salvation by grace or that good news. Because if he came preaching works, well then he would do man absolutely no good. And again, I refer back to that particular person. He was sent from God. He preached Jesus Christ and he preached salvation by grace. He told me, is all I needed to do was to believe. By grace, you've been saved through faith. And I realized that I was brought into a situation. It was the very same thing. Sent by God, preaching Jesus and sharing the gospel. That's the essence of what a Christian witness is. And so, we go out street witnessing. You have to be of this mindset. Most people are the mindset, I hope nobody yells at me. I hope nobody beats me up. That's not a good premise to go in with, although we hope none of those things happen. But you go street witnessing, number one, Lord, I want to be in your will. Lord, show me, Lord, what your will is so that I know that I'm entering in, maybe it's an uncomfortable situation, maybe it's even a fearful situation, but it's a situation, Lord, that you have caused me to enter in. It's a situation that you have formulated for your glory. And so I'm entering into what you have for me. I'm entering into a place where you already are. And then I have to be of the mindset, I'm not going to tell them about Mike, because they don't need Mike. They don't need you. They don't need anybody else. They don't need our church. They need Jesus Christ. And so I'm entering in as a representative 
of Jesus Christ. And so, two things, doing the Lord's work, but also there could be a little strife that goes on here. And then thirdly, I'm entering in with nothing else than the gospel because it's that which God works through. So I don't have to worry about talking people into things. I don't have to worry about arguing. I just need to be able to present. If there's a situation that hinders the presentation of the gospel, then I need to exit that situation. If somebody just wants to yell and scream or argue or whatever, I'm not there for that purpose. I'm there for the purpose of presenting the gospel. I'll have dialogue with them. I'll have give and take with them, but not to consume my time with anything else. So John the Baptist, his coming was spoken of in detail. So John the Baptist, this witness, is fulfilling prophecy even himself. And probably the greatest prophecy, one of the greatest prophecies we have is in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5. It speaks of the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Now think of John the Baptist. Now he's literally in the wilderness. I've been able to say this quite often, and I enjoy saying it. I was there. I was at the place where he was baptizing. You have Jerusalem. Let's just call Jerusalem Los Angeles. So Jerusalem, same thing as Los Angeles. Los Angeles, if you head about 30 miles due east, you end up in the desert. You end up in the wilderness. It's the same thing with Jerusalem for the most part. It may not be quite 30 miles, but as you go east from Jerusalem, you end up in the wilderness. Jordan is out there, but there's the Jordan River right there, and that's where John the Baptist was baptizing. So he was out literally in the wilderness. There's just, it's just desert. There's just rocks. There's no trees, no nothing, just, just, just wilderness. So he was the voice of one crying in the wilderness. What did he cry? Prepare the way of the Lord. Well, that's what John was doing. He was preparing the way for the king. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, speaks of understanding, and rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The mouth of the Lord speaking through the, uh, the, uh, the witness. So when it says a desert, a highway for our God, probably speaking of the Gentiles. They're dry. Remember, they're, they're groping in the dark. Uh, you can't find, well, maybe the air is God. Maybe the water's God. Maybe the dirt's God because they don't have anything better to come up with. Valley, valley would be more than likely, a valley would be lush, it would be a place where streams and be a place where things grow and all of that. So that would probably be the godly people that are searching for Messiah. Um, maybe Anna or maybe Simeon, you know, along those lines. And then the mountains, well, since every mountain and hill, every high thing will be brought low, I would imagine this would be the Jewish religious leaders. And so the witness, the witness came for God's purpose. It was he who was spoken of, and John could say, and now he has come. Just as the word said, he's here. And so if you could equate him with the Old Testament, realize he's here, then you would want to know what he had to say. Matthew chapter 3 describes John the Baptist even a little bit more in depth. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he's preparing the way. And what is he preaching? He's preaching, he's preaching a doctrine of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
He's not saying just blanket forgiveness. He's not just saying raise a hand or walk down an aisle and, and, and then you will be forgiven. There's got to be that expression of the heart, repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Saying repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. And so you've got this ministry of these people coming to this man. Now, later on, we'd be told that the religious leaders sent a contingency out there to see what's going on, because these are the guys in fine linen. These are the guys with big temples. And they're thinking, why are they not coming to us? We're the ones who look holy. Well, John was the one, not that he was holy, but had the holy message. And God brought people to him. It's very possible that John the Baptist was from a sect of Judaism called the Essenes. They were out in the wilderness. They were the ones who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were in Jerusalem for a period of time, but they saw the hypocrisy of the Sadducees and Pharisees and wanted nothing to do and do with it. And so they moved out near the Dead Sea. And as, as they were out there, part of their doctrine was the ritual cleansings. And so in the morning, first thing they would do, they would take a bath. Before they went to bed, they would take a bath. Not so much to cleanse themselves outwardly, but the idea was inwardly. And so there's the the groundwork of this doctrine, if you will, of baptism. You could see how if truly John did spend time with these people, because remember what he called the Sadducees and Pharisees, you brood of vipers? If here's this man who did spend time with them, you could see how he could take this concept of baptism, take it to the river, and see that they were baptized, not for forgiveness of sins, but because their sins were cleansed. So, John the Baptist's conclusion, we'll see a little bit later on in chapter 1, verse 34. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. So John the Baptist, he fulfills the Apostle John's purpose to the T. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. So tell us, John the Baptist, as he's sitting on that stand, what did you see? I saw that he was the Son of God. And so John, the apostle, his first witness, will fulfill his purpose. D.L. Moody said, probably you've heard this before, but it, it's just, I think it's a great quote. If you will be on fire for the Lord, people will come from all over to watch you burn. And they will. We're still talking about the witness of John the Baptist. And just think how we must have thought, here I am very plain guy. I'm just out in the desert. I'm just doing what God told me to do. He told me to dunk people in water. He told me to preach this doctrine, which we're not seeing preached from even the temple, but, but forgives the sins based upon repentance. And this Messiah is coming, and, and he could even say, Messiah came, and he came that day, and I baptism, baptized him, and I heard this voice that came out of the heavens. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And, and, and as that all happened, he left. And I just continued on in my ministry until one day I was arrested. And there I was in jail, and, and I kind of lost my faith even. And I, I sent some of my guys and told them to go and ask if he's really the Messiah. And they did, and they came back and, and said that he is. 
and then I, I lost my head because of my faithfulness to him. And so what you need to see is, is the truth of this common man, but this common man who God works supernatural witness through. It's the same thing that he'll do in our lives. Next, we see the reason for that witness, verses 9 through 11. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. The main reason for the witness is because mankind, apart from the witness of the Holy Spirit working through God's person, cannot know God. Again, think back to the Greeks. They've got nothing better, so they're looking into the water and the dirt or in the air, whatever. They're, they're in fire. They're looking at these elements and these natural occurring things. You know, the same thing mankind does today. Makes a God out of, out of the ocean. Makes a God out of the stars. Makes a God, you know, the stars. The stars dictate our purpose and reasoning. And we've got astrology and, 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 and all of these things. They're, they're placing godly attributes onto these things. Where did life come? Well, life it, it climbed out of the ocean or Mother Earth, or, or whatever it might be. They're doing the same thing that they were doing way back then. Man was lost, and man is groping in the dark. This was God's purpose, though, for the past 4,000 years from the Apostle John's day that you had the Word of God. They had it, and you should have been immersed in it so that when Messiah came, you would know who He is so that you would believe in Jesus Christ. Now, I don't remember where I've gotten this from, but... There are four ways to look at the depravity of man, to get a visual example. The first thing is, well, you've got this cliff. Mankind stands at a cliff. And so they're trying to determine, okay, so what's going to happen with this cliff? So the first guy walks to the edge. And he's of the belief, if I take that last step, I'll fall upward. Because I don't want to fall downward, because if I fall downward, then... I'm going to die. And if I die, then what's the meaning of life? But you know what? If we walk to this cliff and fall upward, that would make sense because things will get better. Aren't we evolving as a, as a people? I mean, look, look, at, look at all of humanity today. Aren't things getting so much better? Aren't they better than they were 20 years ago? Aren't they better than they were 30 years ago? I mean, where, where it seems like, aren't, aren't we getting to the, the basis of all disease so that cancer is going to be erratic? It seems like cancer is on the rampage lately. Okay, so maybe the sickness thing. But peace, world peace. Aren't we coming upon world peace? We're at war right now. Israel's exploding right now. You know, you, can you go on the internet and see the videos of people running cars into people and and kill, just brutally killing people. I have a feeling if you step off the cliff, you're not going to fall upward. You know what's more than likely going to happen. Evolution, evolution of mankind, instead of picking up a rock and killing someone, we can pick up a nuke and kill a lot of someones. We can kill more efficiently, but I haven't seen where we can give life. So then, that guy, they get rid of him because it ain't going to happen. You're not going to fall. Things are not getting better. Next, man, well, this guy walks up to a cliff and he steps off and he falls down, but his robe gets caught on the edge and he's pulling himself back up. And he's telling him, don't worry about it. If you go over the edge, you can always pull yourself back up. And this is what mankind has been doing throughout the centuries. It's called religion. 
It's called religion, and it doesn't matter what your religion is because we now determine that all religions, they lead to God. All roads lead to God. And most people will say, well, why won't you go splat on the bottom? Because I'm a Catholic, Presbyterian, Methodist, Baptist, Calvary Chaplain. I'm a Mormon. Uh, I'm a Buddhist. I've taken drugs and I've seen God. Mysticism, whatever it might be, man is continuously groping in the dark. And he's trying to use these different philosophies, different theses, in order to pull himself back up. And then the next guy comes and he stands at the cliff. He realizes that if he goes over and he gets caught halfway, God's going to look down. Or maybe he's fallen all the way, but at the last minute, God's going to look down upon him. This is the cute puppy dog approach. God's going to look down upon him. And God is just so kindly, and we're just so cute as a people, that he's not going to allow me to go hit the bottom. He's going to pull me up. He's going to pull me up because we know our God, our God, or my God, would never send anybody to hell. Our God would never allow anybody to fall all the way to the bottom. This is called fantasy. And then the fourth one, the fourth guy just goes up there, walks all the way to the edge, turns around, smiles at everybody, steps off the end, falls all the way to the bottom and goes splat all over the place. And no matter who does it, sooner or later, that's going to happen to all humanity because we've been told, Romans 3, 9, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For all have previously charged, both Jews and Greeks, that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who searches after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. That means we're worse off together than we are individually. There is none who continuously does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. That's called splat on the ground. And what Paul is doing, he brings up potential points of self-righteousness in Romans chapter 2, but then he comes to this conclusion, and each one of those points is him hammering the nail on the coffin of humanity. Apart from Jesus Christ, there's no hope. Thank God he gets to verse 21, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. They were always talking about the depravity of man, but the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, we've got the Apostle John and the Apostle John's witness here. To a people, well, again, verse 9, that was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. Now, it's illuminated. Now, here's what you've been looking for for centuries. It's the Messiah. This is the true God. This is the true Creator, both Jew and Gentile. And it says... He was in the world. We're not going to go there, but if you go to 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, I heard him. I touched him. I saw him. I spent time with him. I, I, I saw that he existed. Verse 9 kind of condenses that. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, but the world, the world did not know him. He came to his own, speaking of the Jews, 
and his own did not receive him. And then lastly, we see the results of the witness, verses 12 through 13. But as many as received him, to them, to those who received him, he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And this is the argument, and be well to underline this and to note it, because you hear this quite a bit. You hear it within what claims to be the church, and you definitely hear it in secular arenas. Well, after all, aren't we all children of God? And they'll look at all of humanity. Now, aren't we all children of God? And the answer, the biblical answer to that is, no, we're not. We are not all. We are all creations of God, but it says right here, I just read it, but as many as received Him, Jesus Christ, as many as received Jesus Christ, to them, to those people who have received Jesus Christ, He gave the right. It's only then as you receive Jesus Christ that you have the right to become children of God. So the only way to be a child of God is to become a child of God. You can't just be born and be a child of God. There's got to be a change that occurs within you. As many as received Him. How do you receive Jesus Christ? Is to believe on His Word. To them, to those who believe in His Word, He gave the right. So God has given us a right to become. That word become, it tells me that there's a change that is necessary in our lives. Again, we'll expand on that in John chapter 3. The right to become children of God to those who believe in His name. Now when it says those who believe in His name, those who believe in the nature of and the essence of Jesus Christ. What's the nature and essence of Jesus Christ? Deity. You have to believe that Jesus Christ is God. You can't believe that He was just another person or a good man or anything. You have to believe that He came from the throne room of heaven. How was this accomplished? Well, not for those who were born of blood. Just because I was born to my mom and dad doesn't get me in. Just because you were born to... Uh, a pastor, my kids, it doesn't help them. There needs to be a change in their lives. My grandchildren, at some point, they're going to have to bear witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're going to have to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Nobody gets in by birthright. Nor of the will of the flesh. You can't work your way in either. You, you can do all of the works you want, but it's just that one area where you fail that negates all of the other works nor of the will of man. Nobody else can get you in either. i got bad news for the Mormons. You can't pray or baptize the dead into heaven. And so, not of blood, the will of flesh, nor the will of man. But again, it's simply those who were born, but of God. But of God. Of God. And again, John is going to expand in that point, but he's laying these things down. He's laying these things down so that we would not only see the truthfulness of Christ, but the necessity of Christ in our lives. Something's got to happen. Something's got to occur. Let's turn to Hebrews real quick and then we'll close. Mostly, well, because it lends to what we're talking about, but the children are learning this as well. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intent of the heart. The word of God is living and powerful. 
So the Word of God, it, it, it goes inside of you. You hear it. And it's living and powerful. It's kind of like a virus. A virus enters into a host. And it's living and it can be powerful. Look at the HIV virus. It'll go into that host and might even lay dormant for quite a period of time. But that virus that's inside of somebody sooner or later is going to be manifest outside of them. Well, the Word of God is even so much more powerful than that. As it enters in, it does a work from the inside out. Now, for some of us, I know for me, it laid dormant for a period of time because of unbelief, but nonetheless, it was still there. And it was still convicting. And it was still doing a work. And it never died. It was constantly achieving God's purpose in my life until that one day when it exploded within my life. It's living and powerful, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. Well, to the thinking of the time, that's a Roman sword. Roman sword in battle, that goes as deep within somebody as you could possibly go. Now, what's as deep into somebody that you could possibly go? Well, into the bones. But what's even deeper than into the bones is inside of the bones, where the marrow is. I'd present to you that today, if it was written today, even to the DNA. Even to the DNA, because if any man's in Christ, he's a new creation. And you should be able to look in the mirror, and you should be able to see that. Now, in Thessalonians, we are told that man is body, soul, and spirit. The totality of who man is, is body, soul, and spirit. We see how deep the Word of God goes. Two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul, spirit, joints, and marrow, or body, soul, and spirit you know what your body is your soul your soul is your personality well it pierced my personality i'm no longer the profane person that i used to be there's been a change spirit spirit is that portion of us that communes with god ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 5 it tells us that we were spiritually dead but then we have been spiritually made alive we now have communion with god And so it's the Word of God. It's the Word of God that has caused these things to happen. This this is the writer of Hebrews saying the same thing that John is saying back in verses 12 and 13 in just simply a different way, but it's really the same thing. It's the same thing, and it's an amazing thing that the Word of God is able to achieve. So John, he's presented his thesis, and now he's going to be showing point after point after point. He's going to be building, not only displaying Jesus Christ, but showing salvation, but also showing the necessity of salvation so that we would know and we would understand who this man truly is. Father, I just pray that we would enter in with eyes wide open, truly seeing and understanding not only Jesus Christ, but also, just as important, the necessity for Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we just thank you again for your word, and thank you, Lord, how it blesses our souls to be able to study it, to be able to look at it, how it reconfirms our salvation, or maybe it'll even show somebody who is outside of salvation who has truly never entered in. And so, Lord, your word tells us if we confess the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then we'll be saved. And so, Father, I pray that every person here would examine their hearts. And, Lord, if there's anybody here that has been found lacking, I pray, Lord, that they would truly confess and believe. Because, again, if we confess and believe, we will then find ourselves to be children of the living God. 
And so, Father, we just thank you and praise you for this evening. Just bless us, Lord. Enable us to be a blessing in the lives of others, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you all stand, please?